Hello, I'm Julian Bergini and welcome to the latest in a series of microphilosophy podcasts looking at how different philosophical traditions around the world shape the way we think. They've been made in conjunction with the Berggruen Institute's Philosophy and Culture Centre, the goal of which is to develop fresh ideas through comparative and interdisciplinary work and relate these insights to the pressing issues of our day. Our discussion today is about Confucian notions of hierarchy and its uses, and it's recorded at one of the Berggruen Institute's workshops in Stanford. Joining me are Stephen C. Angle, Mansfield Freeman Professor of East Asian Studies at Wesleyan University, Joseph C. W. Chan, Professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong, Michael Puet, the Walter C. Klein Professor of Chinese History at Harvard University, and Justin Tewald, Associate Professor of Philosophy at San Francisco State University. I began by asking Joseph Chan about why hierarchy is often considered to be problematic. Hierarchies are often thought to be uh, unjust because people got some more power, their status, resources than others because of their race, gender or religious beliefs. But in ideal hierarchy, as understood by Confucianism, for example, uh, these hierarchies are facilitating human relationships and learning and human growth. So those who are in the higher rank would do their best to help those who are in the lower rank in all kinds of uh, affairs, in learning, in arts, and in politics, in education, in dancing, any kind of uh, fundamental human inquiries. Yeah. You can talk about hierarchies and you can talk about learning. Okay, so because it's true, isn't it? We think of hierarchy now in the West primarily as something which is to do with oppression. But you say actually Confucian hierarchies are marked by reciprocity and mutual concern. Perhaps could you give us just one example of where we might see that at work? Well, think about uh, the relation between uh, a teacher and student or a supervisor or a supervisee. Reciprocity here means that the teacher will do his or her best to help the student learn it would uh, encourage her to learn and appreciate her learning and talents. And on the other side, the student would show respect to the teacher for his knowledge, or for his wisdom, and for his benevolence. So there is a reciprocity of this kind. Confucianism says, you know, on the one hand is I, which is love. The other is Jing, which is respect. And, and mutual concern is really the, more or less the same, that I'm concerned about your welfare, and so are you. So some of these hierarchies, nevertheless, they, they do involve asymmetries of power. But you think that it's reasonable for there to be inequalities of status and power if certain conditions are yeah. fulfilled. What are those conditions that need to be fulfilled to justify Well, the, the unequal power would be justified to the extent that it, it serves the, the weaker side, as it were, those who are in the lower rank. And also that there is a relationship going on between the two sides and that relationship is ethically attractive and beautiful that people trust each other and care for each other so that every every participant in that relationship will grow so it's actually a bit like Rawls's difference principle that you know inequalities are justified to the extent yeah. that they except the... except that i think for Rawls uh, economic inequality has to be justified and economic equality is a normative default. Whereas in Confucian hierarchies, I don't think they're aiming at equality as such. Whoever can further develop, let's say, let the student learn and grow and become his teacher equal, so there is equality. But Confucianism said, well, this is not necessarily the end state. If the student can surpass 
his or her teacher, you know, that would be even better. Mm-hmm. So I call this uh, upward inequality, you know, progress that uh, upsets the initial equality condition would even be better. Mm-hmm. Here's Justin T. Wolf's response to that. Well, I like it. I think it's a very powerful and compelling view, in part because it's counterintuitive for those of us who've grown up in a more Western context. We tend to think of reciprocal relationships as one that trades in the same currency, so to speak, right? So uh, one party provides something and the other party provides something similar in return, almost as if you know, one's given a loan out to the other or something like that, or exchanging gifts of the same kind. But uh, what Joseph shows us is that, uh, in fact, they can be using very different kinds of currency. In fact, some important and valuable sorts of relationships depend upon trading different kinds of currency. Doesn't that point to a sort of a, a problem, really, with at least the sort of default everyday assumptions about equality in, in Western societies? I mean, people will pay lip service to the idea that equality isn't the same as sameness, right? right. That e- equality of esteem and that doesn't mean treating people the same. But in fact, we seem to have a problem with that. We, yeah. we, at some level, we want to think that everyone has equal amounts of everything to yeah. offer, right. and anything less than that is disrespectful right. in some way. Um, I mean, Stephen, your, your, your work uh, perhaps fits in, dovetails with this, um, because you, you put forward the idea that what Confucians try to do is to sort of square a form of natural equality with a kind of socio-political hierarchy through meritocracy. Could you just briefly explain what you mean by that? So the natural equality is uh, our shared capacity to become virtuous, to become moral. Um, and. Uh, we're all alike in that, uh, and this is a, a view that Confucians articulated uh, early on to reject the idea of natural hierarchy. Uh, so the idea that you might be because of birth, um, you're because of the family that you're born into, uh, that you automatically have, uh, deserve some kind of higher status. So the, the idea of natural equality is to reject that. But it goes hand in hand with the uh, a recognition that we're all different from one another. And I think one of the things that I like about Joseph's approach is it really uh, embraces those differences, right? This, uh, Rawls has this idea of the, the fact of pluralism, right, which drives a lot of his thinking. It's kind of a, a fact of inequality. And then we should design our societies around taking advantage of that fact rather than pretending that it doesn't exist. Yeah. One thing that's quite interesting about your view is that you, you think it fits in quite well and, and perhaps goes further, and understandings better than a lot of contemporary psychology around ethics, because there's this big debate that's been going on in psychology and virtue ethics about whether or not character traits and virtues are real, or whether they're just responses to situations. Because there's a lot of evidence that how well people behave is quite easily manipulated by the changes sure. to their situation. How does this Confucian view manage to help illuminate that debate? Well, I think that what a number of people have, have shown uh, is that the Confucians early on recognized the degree to which situations shape what we do. The clothes you wear, the, you know, your posture, and, and, and uh, so on and so forth, uh, very much influence how you act and how others act around you. But that doesn't mean that we can't talk about virtue. It doesn't mean that we can't uh, work at improving our, our dispositions or our virtues. Uh, we just have to take into account that there's both a, as it were, trait side and a situation and that those things uh, work uh, hand in hand. Yeah, so it's not not an either or, there's an interaction between the two. That's right, and uh, so what I have been arguing is that since the Confucians recognize that, then uh, they're actually in a a good position to 
recognize why some sorts of hierarchies are ultimately problematic. Or I should say, they should have recognized it. <laughs> but they didn't. Well, sometimes they did, but often they didn't. And the focus, uh, Confucian focus is so much on individual relationships uh, that more structural issues are not as easy to see. Hierarchies are mostly structural. Uh, so ways in which a woman is disadvantaged simply by virtue of her gender in a given society is not something that you necessarily see if you just interact with her as, a, as an individual um, and through individual relationships. Yeah, but it's quite interesting. This this tension that is often seen to be between individual virtue and you know social pressure in, in Western thinking. Perhaps one reason why it appears that attention is simply we we have this default assumption of the individual as something separate from society. As soon as you have that view, which is more natural in the Confucian world, that the individual is inherently socially related, it's not such a tension anymore. It's just a. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. So the. Uh, the Confucians emphasize very much the, our relationality. Um, doesn't mean that we are simply our roles. We are still individuals whose individual moral progress uh, is important, but we're also very much constituted by those relationships. So, if you are, if you grow up in a in a, an oppressive uh, situation where your your group is systematically immobilized and give you opportunities. Uh, then that's going to have an effect on whether and the degree to which you can become more virtuous. Mm -hmm. Maybe I just want to say one thing. I I think ideally Confucian hierarchies are progressive and uplifting, hoping to achieve, you know, enlightenment for everybody. But in reality, uh, as uh, Stephen has alluded to, you know, sometimes they they feel too comfortable with existing hierarchies. And those who are at the top, you know, too feel comfortable about what they have and those who are below would feel too much deference you know, towards the upper level people so that those hierarchies become stagnant and become you know, a permanent fact of uh, a particular society. And that would be bad, I think. You know, at times, uh, when you read the Confucian uh, texts, uh, you can sense that sometimes they you know, unconsciously brought themselves into that latter route, mm. that you know, hierarchies are permanent, Societies are permanently unequal mm. and, and let's live with it. Yeah. And that, that's not too, too, too good, I think. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting that there are always traps that any kind of view tends to, to lead towards, isn't it? And, and this is perhaps one of the benefits of doing comparative work is that you can do the alternative perspective allows yeah. you to see the, what's deficient in, in your own. Um, Justin Tibold, you're, you're, you talk about something a bit different here at this uh, uh, workshop we're at. Mm-hmm. Um, a hierarchy of expertise, if you like, um, that mm-hmm. some people are but greater experts than others. Now, we don't have a problem with that when it comes to things like, say, football or woodworking or even philosophical scholarship. Mm-hmm. But moral expertise, this is an interesting concept, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. is, is there such a thing as a moral expert? Right. Well, I think actually the, Neo- the Confucians are certainly committed to it, and I think we are too. So you're right, it does seem distinctive in some way, in a way that makes hackles rise from time to time, uh, frightens people, because we tend to think that in ethics we should be autonomous in the following sense, that when we make moral judgments, we shouldn't have to appeal to the authority of someone else in order to arrive at those judgments with confidence, right? So a good analogy, I think, would be something like, in the non-moral realm, we're comfortable with expert-novice relationships such as deference to the expertise of an electrician. I'm not an electrician. That means that if I want to rewire my kitchen, I 
defer to the authority of someone who knows something about the principles of conduction, and I'm perfectly comfortable with that. But when we take it out of the non-moral realm and put it in the moral realm, people worry that it undermines a kind of moral autonomy. It undermines uh, autonomy, but I suppose also uh, responsibility, isn't it? There's a danger that if you sort of defer to someone else in your moral judgments, that's an easy way of getting out of your moral responsibility. Right, that's one of the worries. However, one could always reframe that and say that it's more responsible to have a certain amount of epistemic deference and recognize your own limits. So it's difficult, right, because you have to sort of set your ego aside. But in fact, one might say it's more responsible. I mean, actually, as a matter of fact, you can find examples, I think, of people uh, deferring to to moral experts. I I think of the example of um, ethical shopping, for example, where people often are happy to go by the stamp of approval of some kind of ethical certification or some kind of magazine. They don't go and check it all out for themselves. Often they don't even know what the criteria are, actually. They just don't go along with it. So perhaps it's not so unusual. Right. But there's a particular form of moral expertise you're interested in, which is politically sanctioned moral expertise. I mean, this, this is a, perhaps a tricky idea to get over briefly, but what is a politically sanctioned moral expert, and what's their role? The Confucians, and certainly one Confucian in particular that I work on, Xunzi, who is uh, much derided for his view that human nature is bad or evil, he thinks that, uh, in general, people stand in need of a great deal of moral education. Now, of course, we can take on teachers or other sort of local community authority figures, but there's a certain political role, there's a certain role for political experts that uh, can only be executed well if they have some sort of political sanction or the imprimatur of the monarch. And that's because in order for a sort of moral system to work, you need a set of interlocking models, right? And you need people to agree on those models, much as you need people to agree on terminology, right, or gestures. It would not work if um, I understood certain offensive gestures as polite ones, so that when I communicate with you, I you know, flip you the bird or something. <laughs> and you. So similarly, we need various models, ritual protocols, uh, standards of right and wrong that have to sort of fit together into a coherent whole, and only political leaders are in a position to make sure that that happens. Therefore, we need political authorities who behave as moral experts. Mm. Now, this creates a sort of interesting situation, because normally we think that we identify experts for purely epistemic reasons, right? Meaning, Um, epistemic reasons meaning? Having to do with their knowledge, right? right? So if I, for example, feel like I don't have a good grip on tipping culture, and so I don't know how much to tip and when to tip, I might look to someone who has a lot more experience, uh, either because they've been immersed in the culture that, um, in which people tip regularly, or maybe they even know something about the other side, you know, they've actually worked in the industries, worked in positions that often get tipped. And so in that case, I defer to the expert for epistemic reasons, because I think she knows more than I do about it. But in the case of political expertise, it's harder to identify the reasons for deference they're not just epistemic, in part, they're political, right? It's out of a sort of loyalty or commitment to your community. Mm-hmm. And they might even be something, uh, in some sense, more immediate than that. So for the Confucians, they often draw analogies between the ruler and, say, parents. So the king is like mm-hmm. the father and mother to um, his subjects. If you think about the way in which we defer to our parents' expertise, that too is more immediate and not purely epistemic. It's mm-hmm. not merely a matter of fact that Um, my mother knows more than I, it's because my mother tells me that I should do something Mm. and that I should adopt a particular view and I do it. Uh, She's my mother. 
It, could you give an example, perhaps, of how this might work in, the, say, a Western political context today? I mean, do we have examples of this, or is this something we should be importing? And, and if so, what would, it, what would it or does it look like? I think the very proposal that we have political moral experts has a chilling effect um, <laughs> in, in the present-day context. So one would be hard-pressed to find an example that is sort of overt and explicit, but I think we can, if we look hard, see cases where we're more comfortable with the idea of political moral expertise. So, for example, uh, students are expected to take courses in civics where they learn something about government. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes it's not just the form of government, they're meant to impart some sort of understanding of the moral value, of uh, moral and political value of having this particular form mm -hmm. of government. And I think insofar as children have legitimate reasons to learn this stuff, they're not purely epistemic, they're in part political. I mean, you, you talk about this sort of a chilling idea to, to people today. I mean, perhaps one of the most alien ideas that we've been talking about here is something you talk about, Michael Pooch, these rituals, these ancient rituals, which are rituals based around hierarchy, right? So their ancestor uh, worship um, in some way. Now, uh, when we look at those, obviously we find these very strange. We don't really understand what's going on. But you, you think perhaps we, we, don't, we misunderstand what's going on. We think this is a straightforward case of of worship, um, there's some other function being fulfilled here. What is that function? Yeah, I think there really is. When we tend to look at something like ancestor worship, we tend to assume, well, well these exist to socialize people into always believing that the past was good, that their ancestors were good, we must follow what they did. Actually, if you look at these rituals, and more particularly the way the Confucians will reinterpret them, the focus really is on constructing the past, constructing the ancestors, um, working through the complexities of what these people were in the past and how we can relate to them and how we should relate to them. Yeah. So actually very complicated rituals in which we work through a lot of these tensions. But And also perhaps the way these rituals work isn't about as well, the, uh, the, the fixedness of the hierarchy. It's actually telling us something about their fluidity. What is that? Well, one of the key things that Confucians will do with these rituals is they'll focus on role reversals. So for example, if, if you have a father who's passed away and there's the living head of the family, his son, and then that person has a son. What will happen in the ritual is that all three, and presumably the, the deceased as well, will enter the ritual space and the grandson plays the role of the grandfather. The father, the, the living one in other words, um, plays the role of the son to his own son. And so through these role reversals, the idea is you're trying to get each of the participants to see the world from the perspective of not just a different person, but the person with whom they have the most tensions with. I mean, very briefly, is, is, is this a 20th century intellectual reconstruction, or is, have you got reasons to believe this is exactly how they saw them at the time? Oh no, this is how they saw them. And there actually were earlier rituals that did this, but the Confucians took these rituals and then made them into what we were just mentioning, and this was their interpretation. Right? They do this precisely to enforce these role reversals. I mean, that's, that's very interesting, but I suppose when you think about what relevance that could have for us, can, can, can we really learn anything like this from this? Because we're not going to start doing ancestor worship, right? But what, what can we take from this, if anything at all? Yeah, we wouldn't do those same rituals, as you said, we wouldn't do ancestor worship, but could we do rituals that, in, that would force these breaks in us as well? Um, I actually know a family not having read Confucian texts, but on their own impose something like this 
where each week each would play the role of a different person of the, of the family. So the children, for example, would play the role of the parents, the husband and wife would switch roles, and would physically do the things that that other family member would do. And they said it was extraordinary for the family. They, it just allowed them to see the, the complexities and the tensions and the relationships from the opposite perspective, and in the long run, that enabled them to relate far better to each other. I find this kind of discussion fascinating for its own sake, but I know some people are perhaps a bit uh, sceptical about the value of sort of comparative philosophy because they think it's a very pleasant sort of ecumenical chinwag in which we, we show due respect to each other and then go back to our own ways. But, but Stephen, you, you mentioned this phrase of rooted global philosophy, which um, perhaps tells us something about why it might be more than that. What, what do you mean by that? Well, let me say two things. First, uh, sort of getting back to what you were just talking with Michael about, uh, and how this might be uh, relevant to, to us today. I think that one way that doing comparative philosophy uh, can shed light uh, on, on our experiences, whether we're contemporary uh, Americans or contemporary Chinese or in wherever we're located in the world, is to call attention to things that we actually still do but don't pay much attention to. So we all do rituals. Mm. Um, and some of them have a role reversal feature, some of them don't. But they all have certain features that the, that the Confucian theorists that Michael writes about have called attention to. And they, they, they play a bigger role in our lives than we realize, although maybe not as big a role as they should. Now, what sort of rituals do you have in mind? Well, I mean, it, something as simple as shaking, shaking hands, mm. right? Um, so one of the things that Michael has, uh, has focused on is, is the way that rituals uh, sort of rupture or break the everyday interactions and put us into a slightly different space. Right? When you're shaking hands with someone, you're not just touching them. You are uh, expressing a kind of equality with them. Um, when, when they ask you how you're doing, you're saying, oh, everything's fine. Again, you're saying something that is probably not entirely true. That is to say, you're, you're sort of shifting into this slightly different, weird ritual space. But that has, that has effects. The symbolic expression of, a, of equality helps to actually make us equal. With the help of these other traditions, when we notice that and realize how much that actually is going on, think about its value, and then maybe we realize, you know, ritual. This word sounds really, mm. you know, old, old-fashioned, uh, but there's some real importance here. Yeah. So that's that's one thing. And then just the the idea of rooted global philosophy, briefly, is uh, to take this approach to our philosophizing. So I, the the ritual example I'm talking about, our actual everyday experience. But when philosophers, not, they don't have to abandon their roots in Aristotle or Kant, but to think about the questions that they're studying uh, with an, sort of an, an open-minded eye to other sorts of stimuli that can, that can lead them to see questions in new ways or even think of new questions. Well, you made me very self-conscious now about the ritual of uh, closing a discussion like this by thanking uh, my guests, Joseph Chan, Michael Pruitt, Justin T. Wold and Stephen Angle. But uh, in this case, at least, I can say it's, it's not just ritual. It is deeply felt and sincere. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Joanne. There will be more global perspectives on hierarchy and equality and freedom and harmony in upcoming podcasts. To keep up to date, subscribe to the Microphilosophy iTunes feed or follow me on Twitter at Microphilosophy. And do check out the work of the Bogrun Institute's Philosophy and Culture Centre at philosophyandculture.bogrun.org. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye. <laughs>